We are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered unto the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Um, So I check about four to five web pages uh, when I browse the internet every day, or every other day. I check out first ESPN and 11 Warriors, and I get my update on sports and the Buckeyes, by the way, Eleven Warriors is an amazing website if you like the Buckeyes. I recommend it. I also check out uh, one of my favorite blogs by one of my favorite writers and uh, check, check on his musings for the day. And then finally, I get my news and my, my update on world news on NPR and CNN, which are quite different, but I, I like looking at both of them. I ran into an article. I was reading an article the other day on NPR uh, entitled, A Question for You About Evolution... God and death. And it posed an interesting question in the article, and I thought that I would pose that to you this morning. Would your view of God change if there was no promise of immortality? In other words, if this was all that there was, if there was nothing after death, would your view of life and God change? It reminded me a lot of uh, the song Imagine by John Lennon. Imagine uh, there's no heaven. It's easy if you do. Uh, No hell below us. Uh, above us only sky. I think I messed it up. Above us only sky. Um, imagine all the people living for today. It's got a great melody and interesting questions. I pose another one as well. Would Christianity change? Would the message of Christianity change if there was no heaven? If there was no resurrection, would the message of Christianity be the same? And the only way we can truly find that out is if we know what the Bible actually says about the resurrection. So this is my outline for today. We're going to talk about first, what does the resurrection, what does the Bible actually say about the resurrection? Second, what does it mean? What does the resurrection mean for what does the resurrection mean for who Jesus said he was? And what does the resurrection mean for you today? And then finally, do we have any evidence that this is actually true? So real quick, What does it say? What does the Bible say? What does it mean? And is there any evidence that this is true? So our text today is from the Gospel of Luke. Luke himself was not an eyewitness to this account, but Luke had a lot of friends that were eyewitnesses, and he 
gathered the accounts together, and he put this gospel together in hopes that we would believe the things that we were taught. So our text today takes, takes place three days after the crucifixion. And so some of Jesus' followers, who were women, um, went to his tomb to anoint his body with spices. And when they got there, the stone that was, the stone had been rolled away, and they could not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they ran into two men in dazzling white clothes. It doesn't say this in this account, but in other accounts, we know that these were actually angels. The angels said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The women left, told the disciples who didn't believe them. But Peter rose and went to the tomb and found the tomb empty as well and went away marveling at what he had seen. So our first, the first point of today is what does the Bible actually say about the resurrection? First, it claims, the Bible claims that Jesus physically rose from the dead as opposed to spiritually or as opposed to some kind of philosophical idea or presence or feeling. It says that he physically rose from the dead. In the chapter before today, in verse 46, speaking of Jesus' last moments, it says he breathed his last. So we know that Jesus lived in this account, and we know he died in this account. In verse 2 in our text today, as the woman again entered the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And in verse 6, again, messengers from heaven tell, tell the women, he is not here, but has risen. We didn't read this text today, but a couple verses later, it says this. The disciples are standing around, and Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Jesus the claim that the Bible makes is Jesus physically rose from the dead. Again, as opposed to spiritually and as opposed to some kind of idea or presence that Jesus just lives on in the hearts of the disciples. These are actually words that we hear a lot at the death of loved ones. These are very comforting words, but this is not what's being said here. The claim is that he physically rose from the dead. So this isn't like a... This isn't Casper, the friendly ghost, which I really don't like that movie. Uh, this, isn't walking, uh, this isn't the walking dead. It's very important to understand what the Bible actually says, and it says that he physically rose from the dead. If I can give a quick illustration, um, when I was in the eighth grade, I was in a honors history program that was uh, extracurricular, and you, you had to like an essay to get in, and I'm pretty sure that not everybody got picked, but... Anyways, it was a history program, and um, we worked on a project the whole year, okay? And we were given a topic at the beginning of the year, and we had a banquet where, we, where they presented the topic to us, and we would get together and, and talk about the plan for the next year. And it was a really fancy banquet, fancy venue. I went with my parents, and there were a couple of really like, important keynote speakers that were there and described the, the project that we were going to work on all year. And so at the end of it, we got together with all our classmates, and we talked about the plan and the topic and all that. And I was really, really quiet. I didn't say a word. And we were leaving. And my mom was kind of interested. What, did you like it? Did you have a good time? Why were you so quiet? And I said, 
well, I just don't understand how, um, I don't understand how turbulence has anything to do with history. As in turbulence, the bumps that you feel on an airplane. My mom burst out laughing. The topic was about term limits, not turbulence, as in the, the amount of time that a political person is in office. I honestly, obviously wasn't paying a lick of attention. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know what was going on there. Um, but you see, it, it completely changed the story. I had, I had no idea uh, what it was about. We, to really understand what the resurrection means, we have to know what it actually says. And that this is a staggering claim. This is a staggering claim that someone physically rose from the dead. We see in our text today in verse 4 that the women were perplexed at not finding his body. We see in verses 10 through 11, when the disciples heard of the news, it says these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I think it's really helpful to point out here that the, the people in the scriptures thought this was a staggering claim as well. I think sometimes we think because this was written so long ago that they were super gullible. Well, they didn't think, think about things, that they're not as smart as we, we are, that we've progressed, we have technology and all this stuff. No, this was a miracle to them. This was a miracle to them as well. One of the things I find that is so refreshing about the Bible itself is it says uh, in a, later on in the, in the Bible that if the resurrection isn't true, if it didn't actually happen, then the message of Christianity isn't true. The message of Christianity itself falls apart. I love that because it's all in with that, with this statement. It's not just throwing it out there um, with no weight to it. The Bible here and these men and women were all in with this claim. If this didn't happen, um, the message itself didn't happen. Listen to uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 17. It says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Just a quick illustration. Um, last year, there was a huge scandal in sports. Tom Brady was accused of deflating footballs, right? Deflate gate. AFC championship game, uh, he was accused of deflating some of the footballs by a few PSI, right? And it, this was a huge scandal, huge controversy if you look at sports at all. And all these questions came out. Well, how much of an advantage did it really give Tom Brady? How much does this change the story about Tom Brady? How much does this actually affect his career, his Super Bowls? I'm not a huge Tom Brady fan, but I think it's a super silly, super silly controversy. He ended up winning this game that he was accused of deflating the balls by 49 to 7. The next game, if you guys don't know, he won the Super Bowl, and they checked the balls a lot. And this season, they checked the balls even more, and he's undefeated. I think we see in this illustration that the deflating of the balls had very little to do with the story of Tom Brady. Let me give you another analogy, though. How about Lance Armstrong? Lance Armstrong won seven Tour de France's. He coined the phrase, live strong, in his fight against cancer, which he won. 
But what happened to his story, and what do we know about his message? He took performance-enhancing drugs, all his titles were taken away, and his message, Live Strong, kind of lost a lot of momentum because the guy that, that said it was lying. His, his story completely changed, and I, I used that to show that this is the uh, importance of the resurrection. If it didn't happen, the whole thing far, falls apart. So if you're a Christian here today, do you understand the weight of that? You cannot have that message without the miracle. The Bible itself doesn't allow it. So if you're like, man, I like the love and peace, but it's hard to believe the miracles, I'll just stay with the love and peace, you've now created your own religion. It's not Christianity. And if today, if you're here, and this is uneasy for you to believe that a resurrection happened, just because someone says that it happened doesn't necessarily make it true, but do you understand the gravity of its claims. It's natural to feel uneasy about miracles, and I hope you see that the Bible and the people in it felt the same way. But the question for you today should be, is it true? Did a man really rise from the dead? So what does it mean, my second point? The resurrection confirms what Jesus said about himself, that he is the Son of Man, the Son of Man who has authority over death itself. So what does that mean, that he is the son of man? The son of man is a title used in a couple different ways in the scriptures. We see that in Psalm 8, verse 4, in a prayer to God, David, King David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In this, in this way, it's used as a humble acknowledgement of himself. David is just a son of man. He's born of a woman. He's born of flesh. He isn't God. He's just a creature. God is the creator. But that's not the only way the Son of Man is used. It's also used as a savior type. In the book of Daniel, in, verses, in chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud, clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We see here that the Son of Man is more than just a man. He's given authority and dominion over all things. Jesus describes himself as both in the scriptures. He is the humble Son of Man Jesus was just a man. Jesus was a man, I'm sorry. Born of a woman. He had flesh like us. He thirsted and hungered like us. Like us. He suffered like us. However, the resurrection is confirmation that he was more than just a man. That he was the son of man. The son of God. The God-man. And this confirms that he has been given authority over death itself. You see, death in the scriptures is described as an enemy. Death is, not a good, uh, death is not a good thing. If you guys have ever seen the movie uh, Bill and Ted's uh, Bogus Journey, which is a fantastic movie, um, Keanu Reeves gets to hang out with death, pers personified as the Grim Reaper, and they hang out with death, and death ends up not being that bad of a guy. This is not the description of death in the Bible. Death is an enemy. 
death is an enemy to you, death is an enemy to your family, death is an enemy to your kids, death is an enemy to your happiness. And the claim here is that Jesus has power over death. So what is this power and what does it mean for us? The resurrection reveals to us, the resurrection of Jesus reveals to us that we can trust and place our happiness in God and we can love others for their sake and not our own and this will end in resurrection from the dead that this will end in our resurrection from the dead in verse 5 of our text today the angels ask the women why do you seek the living among the dead in this direct context the women are looking for Jesus in a tomb so they're asking him why are you seeking for Jesus in a tomb when he's alive but I would say that the Bible poses the same question to you today. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, why do you seek life and happiness in things that don't end in life and happiness? Death is the end of life and happiness. Why aren't you seeking life and happiness in that which actually brings life and happiness? Before we tackle that question, there's something very important and I find very helpful to understand. There is an assumption in that question, why are you seeking the living? Is that, why are you seeking life and happiness? The assumption is that you are seeking the living, that you are seeking life and happiness. I find this quote uh, by uh, an old philosopher very helpful here. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of the others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We are all seeking for life and happiness. Something I find very helpful too, is that the Bible and Christianity do not condemn your love and your desire for happiness. They are all about your love and desire for happiness. You see, what distinguishes Christianity from other religions, worldviews, and philosophies is not the pursuit of happiness. That's not what's different about it. What distinguishes Christianity from everything else is where it's found, where happiness is found. This was really helpful for me to understand when I first became a Christian because following Christianity and, and seeking God felt just like a bunch of rules and, a, and do's and don'ts. Obedience to me felt like suppression, like I was suppressing my desire, my happiness. And I was only truly obeying because I didn't want to lose my happiness in other things. And I think that I share this with a lot of people. I think a lot of people will see this as, see this in Christianity, that Christianity is just a suppression of your happiness. It just suppresses progress. It suppresses women. It suppresses sexuality. This is not the truth. This is far from it. Christianity, um, what distinguishes it, again, is where the happiness is found. The Bible shows us that there are really only two options when it comes to where you place your happiness. You can place your happiness in God, or the alternative is you can place your happiness in yourself. One leads to resurrection, and the other leads to death. 
I work at a small business uh, in Pickerington, and we, uh, we, manu we manufacture equipment for water plants. And when something goes wrong uh, in one of our processes, we have a procedure, and it's called a corrective action. And part of this procedure is we try to look for like, what, caused the, what caused the issue. Was it a defect in our process? Was our process wrong? Or did somebody just screw up? And one of the tools that we use, it's called a 5-why analysis. Basically, we ask why five times to figure out the root or the cause of the actual problem. Because usually when you just ask why the first two times, you don't actually get to the root. You find part of the problem, but it's just a byproduct of the actual root. If you were to do a 5-why analysis on what drives your pursuit of happiness, what is at the bottom, what is at the root of your desire for life and happiness, the Bible says, apart from Christ, that you would find you at the center. And that this is the essence of sin. This is the essence of it. We choose us over God. There's a couple ways that I see this so plainly in my own life. And so I'm going to do a 5-Y analysis on myself here. And I'm going to start small and get a little larger. Start with Instagram. I don't actually have an account. My wife does, but I look at it all the time. <clears throat> and instead of, sometimes when I look at it, instead of being happy... <clears throat> Sometimes I'm sad and I'm bitter when I look at Instagram. Why? Because my friends are in Cancun or at my favorite restaurant. But why does that make me sad? Because Cancun is awesome. <laughs> but again, why does that make me sad? Because they're, they're having fun. Okay, but what does that have to do with me? Well, I'm not in Cancun. I'm in Ohio, and that's not fun. <laughs> okay, so again, what... One last time, why does that make me sad? Because my happiness is only centered on me and my experience and my feelings and my life. So let's move on to work. Why do I get so angry and impatient with others at work? Because I do. It always boils down to my pride. Always, in some way or form, I'm not getting what I want. What is this inside of me? <clears throat> How about marriage? This is an easy one. Elaine and I were just at a concert, and one of our favorite songs came on, and uh, the artist said right before it, this is a song about marital strife, and everyone started to laugh. Because, why? Because everyone experiences it. The root of your marital strife almost always, if you're honest, comes down to someone's self-interest is not being met. What is that in us? How about lying? I find this one is such a good illustration. I don't naturally tell lies to people. But sometimes I'm tempted to, and sometimes I do. Why? Every time it's because I don't like the truth, or I don't like how it will make me be perceived or looked at. And a last thing, how about loving God? How many times do I seek God in crisis and then abandon him when that crisis has ceased? It shows me I'm not really after God, but I'm after myself. My love for him is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And here's the most difficult part that I've found in my struggle against this. I'm a slave to it. I know that these things aren't right. I know I shouldn't feel this way. I know I shouldn't do these things. I want to love God and others, but I can't. I'm helpless to overcome this because at the bottom, 
I'm too afraid to let go of my own happiness. I'm too afraid to risk my own happiness. The Bible's message here gets really difficult. It's very plain that because of our selfishness and pride, I'm sorry, it, it says very plainly that because of our selfishness and our pride, the punishment is death, not resurrection. Not just physical, but eternal. Hell is a place devoid of love, devoid of God, and focused solely on yourself. But this is why the gospel is such glorious news for us. This is why it's such good news for you today. Jesus shows us that there is another way to happiness, that there is another way. You see, yes, he was a man like us. Again, he had flesh like us. He hungered and he thirsted like us. But Jesus was more than a man in that he wasn't a slave to himself. He placed his happiness and his trust in God, and he loved others for their sake. And this ended in resurrection. He traded his happiness for yours. He didn't grasp for his own way, but trusted God and loved others unto death. This is the love of God, and it conquers all things. It conquers selfishness and sin and death. And the Bible says that this has opened a door, that Jesus' trade of his own life for ours has opened a door for us in two distinct ways. First, you can receive this act of love freely. You can surrender your grasping of your own happiness. You can acknowledge that you have chosen you over God. And the Bible says when you trust in this, when you trust in his work over your own, that you are forgiven and that you are promised resurrection. Promised life and happiness forever. And here's here's the second thing that it opens for you. And I find this so cool because it's so applicable. When you know that your happiness is now secure in that you are free from the fear of death because you know that your end is resurrection, you can now truly live. You can now truly love God and you can truly love others, not for your own sake, but for theirs. There's no fear anymore of losing anything. You're not afraid of the cost because your happiness is secure. So if I go back just to a couple of the examples, I go back to Instagram. When your happiness is secure, you can look at your friends on Instagram and you can be happy. You can rejoice with them in their blessings, and you can actually mourn with them in their difficulties. You're free from the slavery of self. You know that your happiness is secure. And then finally, how about in tragedy? When when tragedy hits us, without our happiness being secure, it destroys us. But the good news is that when you trust in Christ, it ends in resurrection from the dead. So the exhortation today is to stop seeking the living among the dead and seek the living in the one who lives. I find this one last illustration really, really helpful here. The Apostle Peter is a really good example for me in this. The Apostle Peter was like Jesus' right-hand man. He did everything with Peter, or he did everything with Jesus. They uh, ate together, they prayed together, they did ministry together. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, Jesus told them that he was going to go and he was going to die. And Peter said, no, that's not going to happen. I would never let that happen. I would die for you. And I think we know what happens. 
Peter denies his friend, his best friend, while, it, while he's getting crucified. He is asked by a little servant girl if he, knows, if he knows Jesus or if he was with him, and he denies him. I think that's such a good illustration that Peter was so enslaved to himself. He couldn't bear the shame for like 15 seconds from a little girl uh, for the sake of his friend who is ironically dying for the sins that he had committed. But the great news, and why I believe this to be true, is that Peter's life didn't end there. And that brings me to my final point, the evidence that this is true. The disciples' lives post-resurrection is the greatest evidence that this story is true. In, in, chapter, uh, in our text today, in verse 12, we see that Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw that the linen clothes cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. It said that the women were the first of the tomb. The disciples weren't. Peter wasn't at the first of the tomb. Why? Peter was absolutely ashamed of himself. But what could cause Peter to rise? I don't think it's a coincidence that it uses that language here, that Peter rose at this news. What could cause Peter to get over himself, to get over his shame and rise? How about resurrection? The story of Acts chronicles what happens to Peter and many of the disciples after they saw and touched the resurrected Jesus. Their lives were completely transformed. The disciples began as mere fishermen, and they were always clamoring for position and title. But that's not how their lives ended up. They ended up being relentless in their proclamation and boldness. They loved the poor and the marginalized, even unto death. Historically, it is believed that all the disciples but one were martyred for what they believe. The apostle Peter himself was crucified upside down because he thought himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of, of his master. And this is different martyrdom than we see today. We see this on the news that people will strap bombs to themselves and run into buildings and crash planes. This isn't the same kind of martyrdom. They didn't take others' lives. They, they let go of their own for the sake of others. This is different. And then finally, so the question I would say that begs is what, what caused the transformation in these men? What caused that? What got them to be, get over themselves and love others more than themselves? How about resurrection? How about that they saw the resurrected Jesus and know that that's where life is? And then finally, I would say another evidence that this is true is the testimony of the women themselves and the transformation of their standing and view in society. We see in verse 1, we know that they who went to the tomb are the women described in the chapter before. So it was the women that were at the tomb first. And, then, um, and we see in verse 10, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. The women were the first testifiers that Jesus rose from the dead. But listen to this quote about women from a historian in that time. Listen to this. But, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. 
nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the ignobility of their souls, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. Women were not considered credible witnesses back then. So if Luke, if this was just a story, if Luke was just trying to tell a fib or lying, why would he use women as the first testifiers? It seems, more, it seems more credible that if Luke were trying to tell a lie, he would have t- told the account minus the women. I would say, therefore, it gives all the more credibility that Luke was trying to tell the truth. He was t- trying to say what actually happened. But that's not all that I see here. Going back to what I was talking about in uh, the slavery of to ourselves, what led to the view of women to be less than men in this time period? Was it not the selfishness of men who used their God-given strength to, to overpower them? And what could have been a catalyst to change this? What could have changed this? How about the resurrection? How about seeing Christ's life and seeing that life is found not in, not in yourself, but in loving God and loving others? Listen to what the Bible says about men and women, what it truly believes about men and women when it comes to their standing as equal images of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Just in conclusion, the claim of the Bible is that there is a way to life eternal. And that is receiving the love of Christ, that it makes you a new person, free from the love of self and free to love God with everything you have and your neighbor as, your, as, your, as yourself. That's why we do communion. This is Jesus. This is an illustration to us of Jesus' body broken for you. Jesus choosing you over himself. And this is his blood shed for you. So our tradition here is we take um, a piece of the bread and we dip it into the juice. Uh, If you are a Christian here today, welcome to Christ. And this this food is what um, brings eternal life. If, you, if this is harder for you to understand or you, or you don't believe, this is just a meal, and so I'd ask you to, to not take of this bread. If you guys could stand for the reading, or do our uh, communion reading. Jesus' death brings us life, and this meal reminds us that we are fed by Jesus and forgiven because of Jesus. We rejoice that you have died, have risen, and are now with the Father advocating for us. Amen. With our money, time, and talent, we give generously, knowing that through your Son, Jesus, you have generally given, generously given to us. We rejoice that you have given everything, and we joyfully give everything back to your care. Amen.